Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to Conversations on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have She's not old, but she's an old friend, Eller Maltrip with me. Eller, it's always a lot more fun to talk to somebody that, that you know. And in full disclosure, my family has invested with your firm for a long time. We helped kind of get it, I guess, started originally, Jumpstart yep. Foundry. But I, I say that it's always more fun because I feel comfortable asking you a lot of hard questions with no easy answers. And, and don't, <laughs> I don't feel bad about it. So before we kind of get into healthcare and venture capital. And I've got a lot of other topics I want to dig into. Maybe just give a brief background and intro on yourself and and what you do at Jumpstart. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm glad to be here. So quick background again, Eller Malchok. I'm the managing director at Jumpstart Foundry. And as Brian just mentioned, I have been with Jumpstart almost six years now. So I feel like we met close to six years ago or so. Anyway, so I joined right as our founders, Vic Gatto and Marcus Whitney, were really pivoting the Jumpstart Foundry model away from an accelerator type program into an early stage venture fund. And I've worked with them over the years to really grow that fund model. Um, It's a pre-seed stage healthcare investment fund um, that invests in anywhere between 20 and 35 companies annually. And really what prepared me for that is, is, you know, just some experience in uh, in working with uh, other venture, smaller venture groups in and around my hometown of Chattanooga. So I worked with the um, uh, I worked with a, a group, kind of a venture incubator in Chattanooga called Lamp Post Group, and then on top of that, did a little bit of work with a women's 
um, investment group, no relation to Jumpstart, but it's called the Jump Fund in Chattanooga. Loved that work. And really, you know, what that sparked an interest for me was actually getting to kind of do some of the hands-on work with the founders, but having the perspective of the entrepreneur and getting to kind of jump into each one on, on a, you know, very easy easy basis of, okay, but what are we focused on today and tomorrow and each day being different. And so working with Jumpstart Foundry took that to a whole nother level. Again, 20 to 30 investments. We've, uh, we've designed a system to really help these portfolio companies grow as healthcare companies, um, making strategic connections to them, helping them raise money. So it's been a lot of fun. Like I said, I'm originally from Chattanooga, been in Nashville for six years and, uh, that's the, the quick background on me. So l- let's rewind the tape. Jump Fund, I am familiar. I'm not sure if my listeners, my wife's family has a family office. And my wife is uh, a Harpenthal graduate, works at Harpenthal now, which is an all-girls independent school here in Nashville. And she and her sisters are very focused on women's entrepreneurship, global women's health, and those types of issues. So I've gotten to know some of the Jump Fund folks, but what was your... Why did that interest you initially yeah. and, and, and what led you to participate with that, that group? Yeah. So it was uh, very, it was early in their formation. They had just raised their first fund and I was brought on as their very first intern, which I wear a proud badge of honor for. And essentially I helped the, the general partners of the jump fund build their diligence processes and so what I what initially attracted me to the Jump Fund was, you know, one, it was very focused on, it's fully focused on investing in women-led or women-owned businesses. So had to have a majority ownership by women. And then they were pretty agnostic in types in the types of companies that they were investing in. And to me that, you know, I, I loved that just the breadth of, of exposure that I had there. And so thought that was incredibly interesting. I got to see a bunch of different types of business models, but really again, focused on women led businesses. And I mean, there's something incredibly empowering about that when you have a women led business funded and uh, funded by majority women LPs in a fund. And I, they're still doing fantastic work. and, And I love that. I decided though with my career that I wanted to continue doing that, but to do it in a way that, you know, was more so I'm not going to only select for female entrepreneurs. Instead, I'm just going to select for the best founders hands down and try to be as, try to not bring any bias to the selection. Um, so really looking at companies and, and businesses blind, as, you know, as blind as possible it's incredible that Jumpstart Foundry has been able to invest in in so many female founders uh, and amazing in healthcare. I think there is a correlation there of, you know, female founders and healthcare startups. I think women just inherently have more experience and more exposure to healthcare decisions. They typically are the, you know, in their family units, the ones making the most healthcare decisions. And so they're they're acutely aware and and understand healthcare, um, and so it's no surprise that we've found a ton of great female founders um, that we've ultimately invested in. And I think taking everything I learned from the Jump Fund about what it is about 
female founders and how best to support them, but then trying to select for the best founders blind. It's it's fantastic that we have so many in our portfolio today. And the Jump Fund experience was 2014, 2015. And yep. it, at that time, really ahead of the curve in terms of there were very few venture firms focused on just women-owned businesses or investing in, yep. in women-oriented industries and really presaged a lot of what we're seeing play out today with, which has been accelerated with the, with the Me Too movement, but you're seeing with you know Spanx and Bumble and some of these really ultra successful companies. So yep. kudos to you and the team to be ahead of the curve there. And it's an important yeah. conversation I think needs to be had in more boardrooms. Yeah. And I think it's something, I mean, I, again, I can say that I'm incredibly proud of the, the work that we've done and that we've been somewhat ahead of the curve. But I, I'd be remiss without saying like there is still so much work to be done in some ways, like removing that bias and really choosing companies blind is better than a lot, but there's still so much more that we can do. And I think we're constantly thinking about how to do that and how best we can, you know, build really diverse portfolios with great founders um, from all sorts of backgrounds. And you've been in this industry for a while now. And there's a corollary with real estate. I think, you know, venture is very much dominated by this kind of tech bro culture of the Valley. And in Boston, commercial real estate is a very old white guy industry. What has that been like to, to, to be a, a, a woman in this industry? I would say it's difficult because there aren't a lot of us, but it's fantastic because there are the few of us that are in it are very committed to each other. And so I would say that, you know, I have a lot of great women uh, VCs that I, you know, just have, have built into my network over the years that have supported me, have been incredible resources to me. I think we're, we're pretty open and, and um, giving and, and generous network. And I don't necessarily see that in a lot of other industries, in, including other financial industries. Um, I think venture capital, particularly, it's very the, the the female community and women's community within venture capital is very supportive of one another, which I think is is pretty unique. You know, it, it's it's always interesting when I send emails. I have one of those names that if you don't know me, you, yeah, this you, is the as the New Yorker, I, I'm still being accustomed to the fact that in, in the South, any every name can be somebody's last name. Yep. And there's no way to know whether it's a man or a woman necessarily. And I, my kids are the same way and, and I'm still adjusting exactly, to this. <laughs> I mean, that is exactly um, the case for me. I mean, my, my name Eller comes from my grandmother's maiden name and you know, it's the assumption is over email at least is always Mr. Malchok and they, they think Eller is a, a man. But when I, you know, when I get past that of like, no, it's actually, you know, Mrs. Melchuk, like it's, we're all good. It's fine. But it's, it's, there's always the assumption, the underlying assumption, but it's been, um, I would say it's been comforting to, again, have a smaller community of female found or female VCs that really do support one another that helps you navigate, you know, always that, that bro culture. But it's it's can also be fun to be a part of that and try it. Like I've particularly found in in uh, in some circles in Nashville that the men of my 
you know, of, of our generation and my generation that very welcoming to me saying, yes, we want you here and we want to invite you and include you. They're very well tapped into that bro culture, but they're not exclusive about it. And so it's, that's been, it's been interesting to see how that evolves over time. Thank you for making me feel good about saying our culture because I'm way older than you. So this is like the highlight of my that much <laughs> highlight of my Friday. And so in, in general, are you more optimistic about, you know, women being represented in this culture and in the veteran capital business community than you were when you first got started? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I would say when I first got started, there was definitely, a, there was a lot of imposter syndrome at play. A lot of, you know, I, I don't feel like I belong here, but I feel like, again, the community of other female VCs, the encouragement from male VCs, kind of wipes that away after you're in it for a few years. And I think that's just in general for anyone coming into venture, it can seem very closed off and, and you know, just like any industry, we have our own lingo. We have our, we have all the ins and outs that you kind of have to learn. And I think for, you know, for me, it's just after spending a few, you know, a few years in it, you feel much more comfortable and you kind of have your people and, and then over the last couple of years, I would just say there has been such a, a movement to highlight the inequities within venture and finance that just even having that conversation and, and the light shown on that, you know, funds are being, that they're thinking more about, you know, the makeup of their investment teams and the makeup of their portfolios. Um, at, at one point, I think, or, you know, five, six years ago, it was really the makeup of their portfolios. And now they're getting much more pressure on, well, not just your portfolio, your investments that you're making, but the management team and, and the partners in your fund, they need to be just as reflective of the portfolio that you're investing in because they're the ones that, you know, they resonate, they know what it's like to be a female in a male dominated uh, space to be what it, you know, to know what it's like to be black in a white dominated space. So I think that is continuously changing and I'm encouraged by particularly the last two years, the, the, the effort and the progress that's been made. And so I, there, again, always more progress to be made. Um, but it's certainly, it's certainly changed since I even entered it. So. And that, and that's a great segue into something else I want to touch on, which is Marcus Whitney, uh, who, who is a founding partner of Jumpstart and who is a, a you know, a, a black male. I think he's from Brooklyn originally, yep. right? He's a New York guy, yep. like me. Yeah. And he is like a big black guy with dreads and the whole deal. He is starting a fund that's oriented towards investing with, with you know, black led companies as well. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that and, and how that the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement are dovetailing into the investment world? Sure. And, and I, I don't want to talk too, too much about it because it's really Marcus's story to tell. And Marcus is so I encourage you to have him on if you have. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to get him on on here. He's on my list. So. Yeah. So he is right now. He hasn't quite uh, launched in the market yet, but will soon. So I can give kind of a little bit of background, but well, again, we'll tease it and then we'll get him on here. I'll yeah. tease it and let him really talk about it. But yeah, over the summer uh, last year, as we all, all know, kind of the the killing of George Floyd sparked a movement that that has been 
part of this country for a long, long time, but really kind of lit lit the fire and shone the light on so many inequities. And and I think as as we were experiencing that as a country, we then got to experience it in our own small communities and small teams and families and things like that. And for Marcus, it was, you know, experiencing it in kind of our, our, our world of venture and particularly our world of healthcare. And again, I'll let Marcus talk more to his personal experience there. But for me watching this unfold, it was shocking the hesitancy for so many venture funds. And then particularly what Marcus ultimately called out um, was kind of the healthcare industry for their hesitancy to make a statement on things and to really expose and, and honestly own up to a lot of the inequities that are, have been perpetuated for years and for generations. And so it was an, it was a moment for our team. So me, Vic, Marcus, to really reflect on, you know, what are we doing as a management team to play a role in this and to actually make a difference? There was this opportunity that Marcus saw to truly impact both, you know, the wealth and value creation in the Black community with through Black founders and have them engaged in the healthcare space in that, you know, they are some of the most marginalized people in the healthcare system, in the U.S. healthcare system. And so they know their pain points. They know the problems. They they have great ideas for how to solve them. And they oftentimes are the, the people to solve them, but there's no venture money going to them. And so it was a very natural thing for, for Marcus to say, this is an opportunity for me to make serious, impactful change. And so it was really exciting for me and Vec and Brian our, and our, again, our whole Marcus team, or excuse me, our whole management team to work through what that was going to look like for Jumpstart. And again, when you have a, such a powerful force as Marcus, you know, on our team, like, of course he is, he is the natural leader for this. And it's been, I've learned so much from him um, in this process and I'm excited to see kind of all the investments he's he's going to make. He's already made a few into um, into some early companies from Jumpstart Foundry. Again, Black-led healthcare founders. So it's really, again, it's exciting. I want him to tell more on the next episode. It's a really strong position, I think, for Jumpstart to be in. So to have Jumpstart Foundry as kind of the seed fund, our Jumpstart Capital Growth Funds, and then this new fund, that Marcus is running to to invest solely in Black healthcare founders. So we'll put a, a bookmark there, and and yeah. I'll get Marcus on here and and really dig in a little bit deeper. But to pee back onto what you just said, tell people a little bit more about how Jumpstart is different than a traditional VC fund. Sure. And I just would people would I make an introduction to you or when I talk about you, I, I'd say that you're the air traffic controller for Jumpstart because you all have a lot going on. Yep. Maybe talk a little bit about the platform and, and how you're different than what a lot of people think of as, you know, the traditional Silicon Valley style venture fund. So Jumpstart Foundry, it, people know that the brand Jumpstart Foundry, kind of the, the foundry piece of that pretty well, because it's been around the longest. It's important to note that we've kind of, we've, now have really the Jumpstart brand, Jumpstart Health Investors, and there are a number of funds associated 
with that brand, Jumpstart Foundry being our pre-seed stage fund, which is our most innovative fund model in that it does operate like a venture fund, but it it has aspects from that were pulled and influenced by the accelerator model that, that make it quite unique to kind of as compared to other venture funds. So some of those those characteristics are, you know, just investing at scale. So doing, as I mentioned earlier, 20 to 35 investments every year. That's significant scale. Um, and when I say that to a lot of um, other, you know, peers in the industry, they're like baffled by that. And I'm on the selection committee or have been in the past. And I mean, what's the funnel look like for you? What's your, yeah, what's the volume look like? So we typically see, you know, around 250, 300 applications every year. And so when you're seeing, when you have that volume, like there's just no way to get through it in the traditional sense, which would be, you know, reviewing pitch decks and financials and doing deep dive due diligences on, on all of the founders. Like there's no way that we're going to, to do that for 300 applicants. So we had to design pieces, you know, pieces of our review process that really scaled. And so one of that, one of those pieces was a, an application algorithm scoring algorithm. So instead of asking potential applicants to send us their pitch deck or send us, you know, kind of a packet of information, I instead just like the common, like the college common app, I have them submit information to me in a very standardized form so that I'm looking at standard information from all 300 companies, and then I can score them based on their responses. And I think that was a huge innovation for us to, to take the leap of faith of like, we're not going to miss yet. Yes, we're going to miss one or two kind of diamonds in the rough, but when you're operating at scale, like you have to be okay with missing one or two. And so the, the scoring algorithm allows us to cut through a lot of the noise and really hone in on a top 60, 70 companies um, that that's much more manageable for me and my team to kind of comb through. And then Brian, have you, as you've experienced, seeing 30 companies in a selection meeting to then pare that down to 15 to 17. And then we'll do that kind of again in, in the fall. And it's been... It, again, using using techniques and tools like a scoring algorithm to do that is absolutely necessary. So that that I think is one major difference. Uh, the other is, as you can imagine, even with twenty to thirty five companies writing to issuing term sheets or invest individual investments for all of them. Again, I always say this like it sounds like a personal hell to me. Um, <laughs> So, so, uh, the way we've gotten around that is issuing standard investment terms. We, it's kind of, you can, um, have any color as long as it's black. It's a a take or leave it document or as, as Dr. Morris, who's my father-in-law and an investor, you know, investor with jumpstart, he calls it a Soviet democracy, but you have to vote. But there's only one candidate, so exactly. you know. <laughs> exactly. But, you, but you, you have to have some kind of mechanism there because one to to be able to score them apples to apples, but two, you can't be negotiating red lines with 35 of these companies. Um, it, it, it's on, it would be absolutely chaos. Like it, it would be impossible to do to do that with the team that we have currently, and so we again we've been 
we've incorporated aspects that help us scale our model to do that effectively. And then, you know, with 30 investments every year, it's in some ways at that that point, very much a numbers game, but making sure that we then, once we have 30, how are we supporting them to really successfully raise the next round of capital? Jumpstart's investment is truly a pre-seed stage investment. We provide just enough capital, so 150,000 to get them kind of to market. But from there, it's a lot of hard work on the founders of you know selling, closing pilots, and then typically kind of that next step of raising kind of a true series seed or series A round will come between one to two years after our investment. And we really do try to prepare founders for success in that. And what's your, what's your percentage there from uh, companies that make the pre-seed qualification mm-hmm. to then move in and convert into a, a proper A round? Yeah. So typically it's around, you know, 70% that do that. And then from there, what I like to say then, like the success rate from after doing that. So success rate, I measure kind of getting to cash flow positive is closer to 60%. And so. But give people a context though, because in the venture capital industry, that's an, an unbelievable number. It is. So the, the standard in venture has been kind of the 25%. So one in four, you know, companies succeeding and the venture model, the traditional venture model is, is honestly kind of encouraged to support that in that they're going to invest in and just using the simple, the easiest numbers, invest in four companies. And then only after you've invested, whichever one is showing the most promise, pour all of your resources into that one company and to then work with that company to sell it at the highest multiple possible. And it's going to make up for the other three losses. That's great for the investors, but we wanted to make it better for the entrepreneurs because that's three entrepreneurs, three companies, three teams that are just left out to dry. And the converse of that and what we've seen play out is it encourages that model, like the Silicon Valley model, where you you pick one winner in a hundred and you go whole hog on it, encourages massive risk-taking yeah. And, and a growth at all costs mindset amongst those entrepreneurs. Cause that's, yeah. that's the only way that you can win in that game is being first to market and, and having the most market share as quickly as possible. And, and it's all about top line revenue profit can come later. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And so I think for, for us, we just saw the opportunity of like, well, if we can have, so I would call that kind of the home run, obviously the unicorn, everyone's chasing the unicorn and the home run swings. But if you can have you know, a number of base hits. I mean, I, I know, I, both, I think you're a baseball fan, but the whole money ball yeah. model is, is like, it's, it's. I'm a Mets through. fan. So I'm a, I'm a fan of, of terrible baseball. Teams. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But so, I mean, the athletics were terrible, a terrible team until they started getting a ton of base hits. And I think that, I mean, it's like our, our team's movie. We really feel that movie. And I, I think I watch it at least once a year just to remind myself of how much I love it, Jumpstart Small. It's a good movie. But it's, you know, it um, begs us to say, well, we don't need to invest all of our resources into one company and have that one company, you know, run it to the moon. But what we found is that will happen regardless. It, it will happen 
whether we play a massive role or not. But really where we can influence outcomes is by helping a lot of the companies, a majority of the companies achieve base hits. And if you have enough base hits, and again, 30 investments, and we get you know half of them base hits, that's a great return profile for our investors. It's not a unicorn, but as you know, we've seen you know a unicorn here and there come through without a whole lot of you know push on our end. It just naturally kind of comes about again playing with numbers. And so you, yeah, Eller won't say this, but my family's had a couple of just home run deals that came through jumpstart that, you know, so she's too modest to talk about it, but, uh, it's a good model for, I think, high net worth individuals and families, especially because, you know, access to some of these bigger venture phones is so difficult. The minimums are so high. It's really become purely an institutional space, I I think. And, and so what you all are doing, I think makes a ton of sense for the, the profile of investors that, that we interact with on the real estate side as well. Absolutely. And it's something that, you know, we're seeing is actually pretty unique as we're continuing to grow the jumpstart kind of brand and launching new funds is, you know, Marcus with his new fund is raising a lot from intent, uh, institutional investors. And even the growth fund jumpstart capital is raised from bigger family offices, bigger investors, but we really you know are committed to jumpstart foundry, you know, the, the minimum hundred thousand. Like that's much more attainable for a high net worth individual or a family office to to start kind of engaging in that early stage venture space, which to your point, it's getting so competitive. And you all do a great job educating people too. And that's where, you know, I'm not going to fundraise for you, but I would say that if you're a high net worth individual or family office and you're interested in the venture space, especially if you want to do early stage or seed stage, just putting 100K with Jumpstart will give you more connections and resources and access than just having coffee with a bunch of people that are pitching you randomly. And and it's a much better way to learn how to do this long-term. Yeah. So maybe talk about the power of the network you have and what differentiates you being based in Nashville versus the traditional hubs of, of, of Boston or Silicon Valley. Yeah. The great question. And I appreciate you, you know, pitching jumpstart in the, in the little, in a little way. So I think really the the strategic piece of us being in Nashville is no question the healthcare community that exists in Nashville. And it, it's almost Nashville serves as a hub for that healthcare ecosystem with so, you know, the majority of the for-profit health systems headquartered here in Nashville. We then can kind of branch out into the broader industry with with really strong kind of core roots here in Nashville. And so again, I think specifically for healthcare, it's an incredibly strategic place to be. I do think it is it's a city on the rise and so people, you know, naturally see Nashville as kind of this up and coming place to be with with new informed educated capital. Um, and so we get a lot of interest. It's great for getting interest from you know, new portfolio companies or new uh, new founders, they are looking for capital that is well connected and and well well plugged in. And particularly, again, for healthcare, they they know Nashville as a a hub for that. And so, I think again, naturally, when you're focused in a single industry, knowing where and how that you know that city's focus can can take you is really important. And so, for us, it wasn't 
we have to be, we have to have an office in Boston. Obviously there's a lot of great healthcare and biotech uh, specifically in Boston, but Nashville can kind of carry you across the industry wherever you want to go in healthcare. And and I can tell any aspiring entrepreneurs or people considering engaging with Jumpstart, I've, I've been, I've had the privilege of being in the room for the selection committee uh, process over the past couple of years. And I am far and away the dumbest, most unconnected. That's not true. <laughs> but I'm not a healthcare person at all. And you're in this room with my father-in-law, who's the dep- who was uh, the chief of trauma at Vanderbilt for since 84. I can't do the math. My mother-in-law is a deputy general counsel at Vanderbilt Medical Center. You've got former HCA executives. You've got former healthcare entrepreneurs, people yeah. with multiple exits under their belt. And they're all talking about, like, once you get selected, it just naturally flows into, okay, I can make these connections. I can talk to this founder about that, make sure they don't do this. That won't work, but they definitely need to focus on this space. I mean, it's incredible the amount of connectivity that occurs after the company gets kind of, the money is, is, is part of it, but it's really just the beginning part of the strategic relationship that you all can provide to them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that just lends to the individuals in Nashville, like the, the healthcare industry is big and you have all the big industry names, but it's almost being in Nashville, you have the individuals that are powering those industries kind of at our fingertips, which is, I think, pretty unique to, you know, to jumpstart in that we're here, we're, o- we're only focused on the seed stage and not a lot of other seed stage funds can, can have that easy access to, again, not just the institution, but really the decision makers at the individual level making the, the you know, making these decisions and, and driving where things are going. Right. I think that's one of the most compelling value propositions for your firm is the fact that you and Vic and, and everybody else spend so much time talking to the end user or the logical buyer of the product or the company to understand exactly how they want that product to look and feel and to behave, mm-hmm. as opposed to just kind of saying, well, this seems like a good idea. I think it will work. You all, because you're socially and business interacting with these end users and these clients all the time, you have a really good pulse on what's happening within, within their worlds and getting that buy-in off the bat, which is, is hugely powerful. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great. So we are just chatting away here. I want to be mindful. I know this is a busy time of year for you. You've got selection coming up. Um, so you're in the thick of it. But I, I do want to get your, after I don't know how many pitches you've reviewed or, or whatever, but what are some through lines or themes that you see in management teams and entrepreneurs that you see over and over again that prove to be successful ultimately? So focused on the management teams? Specifically? Sure. Yeah. So something that, again, I'm we're operating and investing in the pre-seed stage, the team is so important. And a lot of times I see investors like putting all of their chips on the team, which I think it is, again, it's incredibly important. But to you, you just teed it up for me and, and what you were just saying is, you know, the market opportunity, knowing the pain point, knowing very, very specifically, you know, how to address or how to even interact in that industry or with that specific pain point is incredibly important. And so when I look at teams, I really want to see, you know, what is their experience in relation to the market or the pain point that they're solving, 
not just have they done, have, do they have a number of successful exits, maybe in other industries, like exits are a great, a great, you know, check on the box and, and okay, they've done it before. I, I likely know they can do it again, but particularly in healthcare, I think their uh, industry experience and what is it about their experience? Maybe they were selling into the you know customer that they're going after now and they so they know exactly how they're going to act or they worked within the industry and they firsthand experienced the frustration or pain point that they've now built a solution for that is incredibly important and then the other i think this this probably transcends a lot of industries or um focuses for for businesses but i love to have a technical found co-founder on the team i think Again, pre-seed stage, it is absolutely necessary because you can dump a lot of money into, you know, contract labor for for building new tech and, and software. And so that's where I see, I mean, the two things, two of the things that that you know most most often result in startups failing is, you know, no market need. So again, the need for market knowledge or experience and running out of money. And a lot of the, a lot of times the biggest spend for early stage companies is building the tech. And so if you can address both of those kind of potential, potential points of failure, then you're much better positioned for success. So again, I always look for, do they actually have that industry experience and do they have someone on the team that can stay up till three in the morning, (laughs) fixing their tech and and software that isn't going to charge them uh, you know, an arm and a leg down the road. So well, that's perfect. Cause I was going to ask you what the red flags are. And I see the same thing in my world all the time is, you know, if you've got this great product and you love it and it's a wonderful idea, but nobody's going to buy it. Michael Burchin would say that's art and, and there's a place for art in the world, but it's not a business. Right. So, right. you know, you got to do something about that. Yeah. Same question. And I'm sure you get this all the time. If you were speaking to a high school student, college student, recent graduate, a woman who wants to get in the venture capital space, yeah, what is the advice that they that you give to them? So I have thought about this a lot because I did not come from a traditional kind of finance or venture background, accounting venture background. I was a I graduated from a liberal arts college with a degree in biology. Woohoo! Liberal arts schools, baby. Yep. So, so to me, my, my advice is don't try to pre-qualify yourself or like, or disqual pre-disqualify yourself if you, if you will, in that I, I, I went into this with a lot of worry and anxiety of, I'm not, I don't have the experience. I don't have the, the knowledge to, to do this, but I think what is even more important to focus on is your skill set with people um, and your skill set in a specific industry and, and market. And so for me, I love interacting, talking, connecting with people. And then I had a personal interest in, in health and healthcare with my degree in, in biology. I was pre-med um, for a little bit. And when that actually came to, you know, the time to really think about that came to me, I was like, well, I don't necessarily know if I want to practice medicine, but I want to be in health and in healthcare. And so, you know, it's, it's very easy at the, in your early stages of your career to say, here's all the reasons why I can't or shouldn't do this. Cause I don't come from the traditional background, 
And so one, try your best not to disqualify yourself early on. And then two, finding people in your network that can help connect you. I mean, Brian, you've been that for me from the, from the get go. I was going to apologize for introducing to too many people. I get inbounded all the time. And so everyone's like, I want to be healthcare venture Nashville. And I just send them all to Eller and I feel terrible about it because I just cram her inbox, but she knows everybody and she takes care of people and she's good. So I was going to, I was going to apologize at the end of this. Now you're saying, thank you for doing it. Well, no, I mean, it, I mean, it, it's, real. I mean, the power of your network early on is very, very real. And so even if you are a recent grad, you know, getting even just connected to the people that are in this space is, is important and doing whatever you can to bring value to them. So for me, when I first started with Vic and Marcus is like, listen, I don't have any finance background, but I'm really good. I just graduated with a degree in biology. I'm really good at thinking through things kind of in a scientific method and, you know, the whole, let's create a hypothesis, let's test it, let's analyze the results and how can we improve the process to get better results. And that was my story to them of like, this is what I can do. And I did that with our portfolio companies of, you know, what type of help are we providing to them? Is it working? Okay. Look at the data. No, that's not working. Okay. What else can we do? And so there's, there's a different angle to enter the industry there's more angles to enter the industry than I think people give it credit for. You know, everyone thinks you have to have all the backgrounds or all the right introductions, but, you know, again, a scientific method or in a, in a devotion to that is what got me in. So, well, as a liberal arts graduate who is in, you know, finance world now, that's music to my ears. And I would echo everything you say. Eller, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. I'm glad that we finally got to do this. We've known each other a long time and you do incredible work. What is the best way for folks to get in touch with you or learn more about Jumpstart Foundry, either as an investor or a potential entrepreneur participating in your programs? Yeah. So for entrepreneurs looking to learn more about Jumpstart Foundry, the best place to go is honestly our website and specifically on our website, our application page, we have a whole FAQ about the investment and how we support and help founders post-investment. So for all entrepreneurs, start there. If you have more questions, there are ways on our website to reach out to our team, to ask specific questions, sign up for a webinar, things like that. For others looking to connect, shoot me an email. I'm pretty responsive in my inbox. <laughs> As and and you know, I, I try to be. Um, so it's the easiest. It's just Eller at jsf.co. Um, so you're welcome to shoot me an email or send me a note on LinkedIn. It's I'm pretty easy to find. You'll 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 see. So you're active. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Has been great. Final question: Have you gotten any fishing in over the pandemic? I have gone just locally, which as you know, it's more so when you're, when you're fishing, doing some fly fishing in, uh, middle Tennessee, it's, it's not super exciting. You're not getting any big catches. It's more so the act of being out there and in the water and calm. Um, I went not recently because it's been cold and I'm, I'm a, and busy and I'm a sissy sometimes. If I'm going to do some cold water fishing, I'm going to go do, I'm going to catch big fish, but I do have plans kind of coming up just to go be out there. I think I might go to the elk 
River, which is not too, too far. Should be fun. Good. Tell Vic to give you some time off to go fishing. I'll remind her. I know we got to get, we got to get through our, you know, deal selection process this spring and then hopefully some more fly fishing in the, over the summer. Awesome. Thanks, Eller. This is fun. We'll have to do it again and, and I'll reach out to Marcus too. Sounds good. Thanks, All Brian. Right. Bye. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.